Um, good evening, everybody. I'm Maxine Molyneux. It's a real pleasure to be chairing uh, Sarah Radcliffe's talk this evening, and I'm very pleased to see some of our students here, as well as lots of others who've come to hear about Sarah's research, but also her reflections that have arisen from uh, the work that she did for her latest book, which came out this year, which is called Dilemmas of Difference, Indigenous Women and the Limits of Postcolonial Development Policy. And that's published by Duke University Press, and we'll be circulating um, the details of that because it's a truly remarkable study and something Sarah's been working on over the years, and I've seen some of that work before it entered the book, um, which actually poses this whole question of how development actually, you know, what sort of reactions does it produce in Indigenous women? And people haven't asked that question. And this is why this work is so, so uh, unique, and also it arises out of many, many years of fieldwork engagement that Sarah has done with these communities, and that makes it a particularly rich and rewarding study. So um, I will hand over to Sarah to take us through um, the findings of her research. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Maxine, and to Paolo and to the Institute for inviting me here today. Um, it's a great Pleasure always to come back to the UCL Institute. Um, okay, so my title is um, focusing on the sort of the dy dynamics by which Indigenous women question and critique the development that they have been subjected to through um, the recent decades. But I want to talk through some of the more general points which um, will be summarizing part of the book in order to give you some of the context for the specific ways in which they engage with development and that they attempt to decolonize it. So um, the starting point is, of course, the fact that indigenous women in Ecuador, as indeed is documented in other parts of Latin America, live precarious lives. They live lives in which their access to resources, to dignity, to security are systematically and consistently undermined in very many um, relations of intersecting powers um, around gender, race, the location, particularly for rural women, and for um, the dynamics of resources and income. And they critically engage with that, and the book that I'm going to be summarizing today is looking really at women's experiences and their voices to try and retell a story of development and its patterns of exclusion rather than telling merely the story of changing paradigms or approaches to development that we've seen over the decades. And my argument is that the pattern, despite policy shifts and changes, and despite the diversity of development actors such as NGOs, governments, international agencies, um, and others, that there is a reproduction of post-colonial intersectional hierarchies which consistently work to exclude and marginalize um, indigenous women, but at the same time, those processes galvanize indigenous women to think critically about and to engage in trying to rework um, public policy development and most crucially, I think, citizenship. So the context is, of course, that we know that Latin America is an incredibly lopsided continent, that its characteristics are that it's a highly unequal society and that that inequality is 
very strongly associated with the intersection of different relations of power. Um, and so one of the other elements of the book is also to raise the question, why does development policy, development thinking, consistently come back to what I call single-issue development? It comes back to gender. It comes back to race and ethnicity and ethno-development. It comes back to rural poverty, or it comes back to um, low-income groups in general. It doesn't deal so well with intersectional inequalities. And so the question underlying part of the book's discussion is also about why it shouldn't do that and why, how we could change um, our thinking about social heterogeneity in a development context as a um, result. Okay, so this is one of the meetings or the lunch after a meeting that I was attending. I was doing a lot of field work in Ecuador. This is in Chimborazo, in the center of the Andes in Ecuador. And I worked with indigenous women and their organizations in Chimborazo over the course of about six years. Um, and one of the women I interviewed on this day um, was Rosario, who's 30, 28 um, and Quechua speaking. She doesn't speak Spanish. And she has had good reason to ask for respect. She says, I just want people to respect me. And the reason why she doesn't get respect is that she is a poor Quechua-speaking woman. The fact that she lives in a small plot of land with her parents, with a, a child, the father of the child is not there. Um, and she has patchy access or has had patchy access to education, formal education, and now to health care and work, and she carries out um, hours and hours of work trying to gain water, trying to gain food for her family. She occasionally goes into the market, which is this town, and she sells some potatoes, she sells some onions, and she then buys cooking oil and flour and sugar um, and school clothes for her daughter. She, because she only speaks Kichua, she gets swindled in the market, she gets racist treatment from the um, customers and from other stallholders. Um, and to compound these difficulties, she was expelled from the communa because she couldn't fulfill the work requirements that were part of the deal of membership of the ethnic community in which she lives. Um, and she was then excluded from village decision-making. An additional factor which makes her very unusual, even among the variety of different women I interviewed, is that she is deaf. But this, her, otherwise, her experience is shared by very many of the Quechua women that I have worked with. And the um, type of engagement that I had with the women was designed to carry out a sort of decolonial research program in which the words of women and their perspectives on their situation were to provide the basis for grounded theorization and the um, sort of systematization of their critiques. So I'm informed, obviously, by a number of different themes within the Latin American, since I'm guessing that most of you are Latin American students, most, a lot of the um, engagement that I have is with the debates around coloniality and modernity and the exclusions associated with it. 
But I also really um, feel that some of the MCD theorizing has been very general, and it hasn't engaged with specific subaltern groups, and it hasn't engaged with trying to understand their perspective on the um, experience that they are living through. But I'm also informed by um, sort of Foucauldian analyses of changing policy and governmentality and changing citizen-state relations over the longer term in order to try and situate both how the lopsided societies are reproduced, but also how there are come to be, at certain points, openings in which things um, might um, change. Uh, it's a rather, it's ended up being rather distorted, this map, but it shows you the location of the two groups that I worked with, particularly the um, first being the Satchila women. This is actually an image of a Satchila man, and um, they are from around Santo Domingo, which I think um, is sort of around here, um, and the, that's a group of about 2,000 um, Satchila who've experienced a lot of settler colonialism through from the late 19th century and increasingly from the mid-20th century, um, and which has effectively shifted their livelihoods from being sort of hunter-gatherer um, groups into settled producers of bananas for um, commercial sale. And then the second group of people, as I've mentioned before, are Quechua speakers from Chimborazo. This is the Andean area which has got Quechua populations throughout it. The Purua Quechua um, are located <coughs> primarily in um, Chimborazo. And that's a very different context for the livelihoods because this is a post-hacienda economy of, of really f small family plots of land and um, very regular interventions by development, unlike in the Satchelor area. Um, and I chose to do this comparative study precisely because there is a tendency to, in policy, make generalizations about indigenous women. And so my interest was in trying to explore the ways in which, yes, we have cultural differences between these different groups, but what were the ways in which the context in which um, various different women found themselves, how that was also creating certain positionalities or certain opportunities for indigenous women. Um, so it was very deliberately trying to choose two different groups of women with very different livelihoods, very different histories of political mobilization as well, and very different um, experiences of um, development interventions. Uh, so the, the women that I was working with are, um, to varying degrees, involved in political movements. And I won't go into that because I'm assuming that those of you interested in that aspect will have read very extensively about these issues which are well covered in the literature. But for the women I interviewed, the majority of their political participation takes place at the village level, either in the Comuna meetings or in the women's associations. None of the women I interviewed for my book were national leaders or regional leaders. Okay? So their experiences are very much of a grassroots 
um, everyday form of life, but that's not to say that they don't have political perspectives and um, experiences. So I'm going to try and cover what I hope is not too much. Um, I just want to quickly explain a little bit more about how I'm understanding post-colonial intersectional hierarchies and its dynamic with development. But I then want to um, look at two very different moments in kind of development's um, engagement with indigenous women as development subjects. The first I want to look at is what I call the indigenous women, in inverted scare quotes, <laughs> um, development policy, which is one of the most recent development policies coming through from the sort of mid to late 1990s, and um, which unusually takes indigenous women and makes them very visible in development, although as I show <coughs> later, it makes them visible in a very particular way, which is very marked by coloniality. But then I want to move on to something which you'll be probably familiar with, which is the idea of Buen Vivir and the government policy now and constitutional commitment to a form of development which is arguably in part um, influenced by the um, indigenous, Kichwa indigenous notion of Suma Kausai. So I want to compare these two different kinds of development and, and then draw some um, conclusions. Okay, so I've already highlighted the importance of, to me of post-colonial intersectional hierarchies. Um, there's not much language um, for describing these um, elements, but it's important to note that if we look just at the mere development indicators that we find indigenous women, especially rural indigenous women, <laughs> and poor um, indigenous women, they are consistently associated with some of the worst human development indicator um, features. So, for example, in the 1990s, female illiteracy in Ecuador dropped dramatically, except among indigenous women. All right? So there are consistent failures of policies that seem to work for other groups to actually reach and... The, um, the groups who are characterised by femininity, indigeneity, low income and rural location. The importance too is that there is, if you look at the intersection of those hierarchies, there's a qualitative additional difference by having those things coming together. And this is the reason why we have these persistent um, um, low um, human development indicators among um, this group. But what's also important is that indigenous women are more similar in their position with regard to education, health, opportunity to indigenous men than they are to non-indigenous women. All right? The gap between indigenous women and non-indigenous women in me all measures is greater than the gap is between indigenous women and indigenous men which is an important um, point to remember. So people have talked about compound disadvantages or complex inequalities. These are some of the terms that, that um, are used to describe um, these issues. Intersectionality 
has, in some people's eyes, been associated with a tendency to sort of try and find the most marginal, the most disempowered, the most vulnerable subject. This is not how I'm talking about intersectionality. I'm talking about it as a form of compound power inequalities. Um, and I also highlight the fact that just because people are disadvantaged by these intersectional inequalities does not mean that they are not thinking, theorizing critical subjects, all right? which is a very important point. And this is just an illustration of how um, this particular Kichwa um, Chimborazo Women's Association decided to identify one of their members as a knowledgeable woman, a kunak warmi. Um, in, um, this was a 2010 um, event held to celebrate International Women's Day. Okay. Um, and as I've mentioned before, that we do see individual and collective agency expressed against the types of violence that they are um, experiencing. So if we look at the patterns of rural development or the patterns of intervention in areas such as the ones that I've described, we soon find that women have a very particular critique of these um, different forms of development. And I just wanted to show you the ways in which they see these particular forms of development, which might be very familiar to you, how they might ex end up excluding indigenous women. Um, so rural, um, integrated rural development focuses on ha rural householders, which are tending to be identified as male. Um, gender and development programs identifies women, but not diversity within women. Participatory development tends to focus on trying to find a consensus around a particular project, um, d ignoring diverse views. Um, land titling has historically been biased towards male agricultural workers. Credit programs are biased towards married women and husbands, I mean women being um, married to husbands who have to give ultimate permission um, to take out credit. And agricultural training is often done in Spanish and with male technicians who are often mestizo. Or if they are not mestizo, they are often articulating a sort of modernist version of agriculture um, for um, their um, beneficiary groups. And these are some of the ways in which indigenous women have critiqued these forms of intervention. They see them as short-term, small-scale, taking no account of the large numbers of hours that indigenous women in particular, in comparison with indigenous men and in, in comparison with non-indigenous women, the many hours labor that they do in productive and reproductive work in landscapes that are poorly serviced. And they're poorly serviced because they are effectively internal colonies that have not received equal um, investment in services. Um, that programs also um, don't choose the appropriate time or the appropriate content for their attempts to engage with indigenous women. Women are marginalized from village decision-making, as the example of Rosario um, illustrated, and that these interventions are very episodic, and most crucially, that they misunderstand their positionality. And rather than me telling you about this, then maybe just take a minute to read this quote. This was from Gabriela, who I said 
as I did for the, in the course of the interviews and talks that I did with women, I said, oh, well, so how is development for you? Unprompted, she went into this. See here is a couple of things which is important. One is that, that Gabriella is very clear that she has knowledge. Okay, right? And the other thing which is very clear is that they're not, this Gabriella is illustrative of other women, they are not anti-development. All right, those are two important points. Okay, so out of this kind of context, an indigenous women's feeling that they are not getting the kind of development that they want, one woman um, speaking at a Riobamba, Riobamba is the capital city of Chambarazo, speaking in 1990, said, why don't we have our own representative, our own office for development for us? And in light of the failures of other kinds of development, you can see why she might make that particular demand. In the mid to late 1990s, development did actually come up with an idea of indigenous women policy. All right, so I'm now going to talk through some of the characteristics of that um, policy. And what we find here is that policy followed very much the model that Tanya Murray-Lee has talked about, which is that there is a problem that's identified, and then that field of that problematic has to be made intelligible to the people who are going to be doing the development. All right. So what I think happened in this case was also that this kind of creation of an intelligible field occurred through pre-existing forms of thinking about social difference, and it took place in the context of particular post-colonial hierarchies and post-colonial features of development within Ecuador and indeed beyond Ecuador in Latin America. There was rising attention to social difference through the early 1990s, which was certainly part of the contributing processes that led to this, Many of these early 1990s attentions to social differences, Maxine has written about very extensively, is a concern in, so in neoliberalism to identify particular groups who are most vulnerable to the economic restructuring that neoliberalism is associated with and an attempt to bolster the um, well-being of particular um, groups. And we also have the context of democratization, which is, of course, characteristic of the Latin American um, context. What I argue overall is that it did not take into account those sort of relational and power-laden patterns of intersectionality. Let's look how it was meant to ha what was meant to happen. First of all, this dynamic of um, indigenous women policy grew out of gender and development, which is known by the acronym GAD. Um, gender and development um, in which the aim is empowerment and the aim is to uh, add in indigenous women to a project of empowerment which is already normalized and um, authorized within Latin American states. We've had gender mainstreaming institutions, we have had women's um, councils um, established throughout Latin America at this point and um, in the mid to 1990s, people started saying, well, we ought to add in indigenous women to our sets of concerns. Um, 
But as you can see here from the summary, this GAD policy was embedded within a very particular institutionalization of what gender policy meant. It was a gender policy that had been carried out and implemented and staffed by generally urban, more economically secure, more Western-oriented um, and um, people in, um, trained within the kind of global gender models. Okay, And the, the policy was going to be considered within that context. The other element here was that well, it's what I've called pumped up participation, which is basically that we had to sort of boost participation even more among these um, excluded women in, in both formal and um, public spheres. And this was, of course, about um, creating spaces of decision-making and including women in those um, projects, um, including them within beneficiaries, um, and it was a particular interpretation of participation in which the formal political participation was highlighted. Um, various different agencies in the book, I go through the detail of the different projects, but UNIFEM, Inter-American Development Bank, World Bank in, in projects within Ecuador, um, and others were involved in implementing and promoting this particular um, indigenous women policy um, and as I've mentioned before, this was very much about encouraging formal political participation. It was also about the formalization of women's associations um, and in the end requiring bureaucratic hurdles for them to undergo in order to get recognition as these spaces of participation. So, for example, there was a minimum amount of money they had to have in their bank account in order to get registered or they had to have literacy and they had to have mobility in order to go to the city to get their organization registered. Many things, of, of course, that indigenous women do not have to hand in order to carry through those sorts of um, possibilities. They might have wanted them, but they were often prevented from um, participating in them. There was also extensive training for selected um, groups of women who were brought into the programs run by Inter-American Development Bank, for example, training in formal um, national and global institutions, human rights, conflict resolution, political and civic um, awareness, strategies of negotiation, and um, this was um, around a model of leadership that individual women were to pursue, which was to emulate Rigoberta Menchu and Nina Pacari. These names were constantly um, repeated as the sort of role models for indigenous women, such as the ones that I've pictured um, earlier, which goes against indigenous women's sense of leadership at the village level, which is that you move in and out of leadership positions and that you're part of a solidarity network in a more horizontal way. And they feel as alienated from Rigoberto Menchu as they do from, say, um, the, the wife of the president. Um, so this is also, I think, articulating a notion of empowerment which is understood within a colonial frame. 
Indigenous women were understood in, if you look at the documents, if you look at the quotes from the advocates of this approach, they were looking at the fact that what that indigenous women were inarticulate, that they were unable to speak, that they were particularly unable to speak in public arenas. And there was a constant re referral back to this lack of a voice. Um, and the lack of voice was attributed, again, persistently in these um, models um, and policy documents to traditional culture. It was seen that indigenous women were um, being constrained by indigenous culture and hence were inarticulate, were unable to speak within um, public spaces of empowerment. So, and it was also modelled, um, and this is, I draw, draw on um, Elizabeth Pombinelli, who's a post-colonial writer who talks about how policy solutions um, in that sort of colonial modern dynamic are concerned to individualise agency, all right, which he argues has been a trope in Western society since the late 18th century. Um, and looking at this indigenous women in development policy, I think you can also see that trope coming through um, again. Um, and a, an idea of people being, you know, they want to get away from the um, ethnic society. They want to get away um, into a modern form of liberty. So let's look at how this worked on the ground, because the Satchelor women were um, introduced to this model very directly by a European international NGO, which will remain nameless this afternoon. Um, and they wanted to work with Satchela and other indigenous coastal women um, in order to um, you know, overcome the zero intervention in decision-making that this consultancy document identified in 2007. Um, and this was a pattern of um, intervention in which the premise was that we had to boost the participation of women because although there was consensus among the Satchela, it was the wrong kind of consensus. So they had participation, but because they didn't include women as much as the international um, NGO wanted them to do, then there was a need to um, boost women's formal representation. So the suggestion which was agreed to by the all-male um, Satchela Council was to elect, the council was to elect one female representative. There was never one in the villages when I was doing my research over five years. Um, and again, we see the fact that the, the program soon um, had its fu funding pulled and they weren't able to go on working with the um, indigenous women. And I think part of that was also due to the fact that there were very different views of what the project was doing. The, the male leadership of the indigenous group felt that women were there to reproduce the ethnic distinctiveness of that population and to maintain that population, um, whereas the, um, the non-governmental organisation wanted to um, boost formal participation. There, there was a, as an increase, briefly, of women elected as presidents and as members of the village councils during the course of this project, very soon after the funding and the attention being paid to this issue ended, those women were elected out. 
Okay. Now, the second aspect of the um, indigenous women policy is the way in which knowledge was produced in the maintenance and the operation of the indigenous women policy. Um, effectively, um, I've argued that it was very much a policy organized around the sort of statistical identification of a particular group that came into being through the very amassing of the statistical data that it had. So I'm using sort of Ian Hacking's idea that the category comes into being through us knowing about it, all right? Um, so there was no intrinsic, there was no going out to talk to Indigenous women about what they felt as Indigenous women. It was about making statistical correlations between being Indigenous female and rural, for example. Um, and it was very much couched in terms of who are the most at risk, who are the most vulnerable. And again, those forms of description and what Cornwall et al. called stylized facts were again and again um, attached to the category of Indigenous women in ways that put different groups of Indigenous women on sort of along a gradient of vulnerability. And of course, the gradient of vulnerability took them away from empowerment, which was already a given at the other end um, in that form of representation. And the third element of this Indigenous women um, policy was about self-esteem. Um, and it was effectively the argument that Indigenous women, again, because of traditional culture, lacked self-esteem and that this was a barrier to their participation in formal political arenas and to the realization of um, their goals. Um, and we've got a quote from a European Union-funded project for rural women in the um, Chimbaraso province, um, which talks about um, the need to promote self-valorization and the construction of self-esteem. This was something which was not just in this project. It was found throughout the 1990s in um, a number of different um, development projects that engaged with indigenous women and women who were identified as indigenous. Um, and the, I mean, I tie it in the book to not only the sort of neoliberal model of citizenship and an active form of citizenship and the need to engage very actively in the creation of one's own social position, but also that the very notion of a lack of self-esteem has in Ecuador been tied consistently through the beginning of the 20th century, if not earlier. I didn't go back any further than the beginning of the 20th century, but it's very much tied to an idea of indigenous abjection and indigenous subalterns lacking that sort of self-motivating um, engagement. So there's a lot of coloniality muddled in there with a sort of neoliberal agenda to change the disposition of particular subjects. Okay, so in contrast, what were, in the meantime, indigenous women thinking about? So I'm going to look at that now briefly. Effectively, the way in which I have learned indigenous women have thought about their position is not by starting with gender. All right? So whereas many of the programs in the 1980s, 1990s approached indigenous women through the lens of gender and gender and development, 
indigenous women do not consider themselves to be primarily defined by their gender. And if you remember the distinction that I made between the gap between indigenous women and indigenous men versus the gap between non-indigenous women and it, um, I'm getting confused now, between indigenous women and non-indigenous women, then you'll, you'll see the sense in that, okay? So, um, so they consider these issues, and this is me collating and condensing a lot of discussions, all right? This is not just the language that indigenous women will use, but that they will talk about the issues around racism as much as they will talk about the issues raised by being a woman, all right? And that this is a question of being, being a subject in you know, becoming a, a fully recognized and acknowledged and dignified subject in relation to a system which is consistently, because of the qualitative nature of being an indigenous woman at the bottom of these different hierarchies, has been associated with a sort of dehumanized um, situation for these women in the sense that they are treated as barely human by many um, elites. And it's in that context that we can look at this quote from Teresa Simbania, who was the one-time leader of the Confederation of Indigenous um, Women of Ecuador. And you can see here that she does use the language of self-esteem. But I think, in my view, um, she is using it to reconfigure self-esteem within a wider social problematic and a wider um, social um, set of patterns of exclusion, which is not merely problematizing their own situation, it's problematizing the context they're in, right? Whereas indigenous women development policy sort of blamed women, this is trying to put them their um, situation in a wider um, context. So I'm not suggesting that women on indigenous women are not actively involved in agenda politics. So I just give the example here of them actively involved in trying to overcome violence against women, but I'm saying that they're positioning that within a much wider context. And another aspect then of what they are thinking about in relation to development is that they want to do development from their own perspective. Um, which again is understandable in light of the ways in which they've been misunderstood or misrepresented or, or not engaged with um, in previous patterns. So I'll just leave you to read. This is a quote from Magdalena Isabusha, who's the women's representative, or was at the time, um, the Equarunari Andean Indigenous Federation's women's representative. So again, what this highlights is that women do feel knowledgeable. The representatives particularly feel knowledgeable about what could be done. And this is reflected, um, or a different aspect of it is reflected in the quote from Rosa Maria, um, who is articulating a notion of the need to both look as the, at their rights as women as well as their rights as indigenous people. Okay, and that's a very characteristic thing. We have the vernacularization of a rights discourse, which is an international rights discourse, but we also have the putting together of an indigenous rights with a women's rights um, agenda. 
And because they see those two things as equally important, many women are very supportive of the Kodempe activities, which is to try and bring women into the conversation about public policy. Kodempe is the Council for Indigenous Nationalities and Peoples of Ecuador. It's now been abolished under um, the um, post-2009 constitution, um, but it ran a series of events on indigenous women and public policy. Okay, how are we doing for time? Um, I'm not sure I'm going to get to very much of that. I've got another 15. 15, okay, fine. Okay, good. Okay, so... The... I don't want to imply that indigenous women are somehow all essentially in agreement in some sort of lovely um, indigenous women sisterhood, because that's not at all the case. We have very profound differences of opinion between different women and different agendas and so on. So I want to try and sort of summarize some of the, the elements of an agenda which women do kind of come together around, not entirely, but they do. And then I'm going to go on and talk about some of the differences of opinion between indigenous women over um, how they might influence public policy, how might they might change development. Um, so um, I'm highlighting this sort of critique of power relations as they're expressed daily. I think that's a very important part of it because it, the, the, the language that they have to talk about these sort of intersecting relations of exclusion are often brought back to the daily kind of humiliations and exclusions and marginalizations and forms of violence that they experience um, some of which have, of course, been articulated by decolonial feminists um, who have the space and the opportunity to um, write these things down and to get out the, the word about these issues. But it's also very much about local um, um, and regional leaders taking up the, what they hear in the village meetings and so on. Um, there's a strong wariness about liberal feminism and the liberal feminism that has informed a lot of the gender policy within um, Ecuador um, as probably elsewhere in, in Latin America. Um, at all, and, but I think that what's interesting is that among older leaders, I mean Nina Pakari herself, Blanca Chancosa and other leaders who were probably really very important during the levantamiento in the 1990s and so on, they were extremely opposed to gender and development and liberal feminism and the kind of feminism that they saw operating at that time. I think what's happened since then is quite interesting, so that indigenous women will actually talk about the, how they can use gender they won't want to have it as their sole element of their language, but they will want to use it as a, a sort of a way to think. You know, it's like Levi Strauss said, it's good to think. This, you know, gender is good to think about. Um, but it's not by any means the sole or the only important axis of um, power that they feel that they have to struggle against. Um, and so they will try and articulate the agendas of the indigenous movement for a plurinational state, for intercultural policies, for um, free, prior, informed consent, and they will insert an indigenous women's agenda into those 
um, components. But I think one of the most um, interesting um, ways in which they've done that is to try and articulate the importance of individual and collective rights being expressed, being guaranteed, being realized simultaneously. Okay, so it's a very strong rights-based agenda, um, but a very interesting combination. So the Andean UNIFEM office introduced a program on their own initiative to try and improve indigenous women's access to justice. Okay, and this access to justice program treated customary law and statutory forms of protection and justice as equally important, but something which had to be articulated in a way that would be favorable to indigenous women. Okay, so I mean, it's, an, it's a struggle. It's not something that can be done straightforwardly, but they were trying to articulate by creating agreements among village leaders and so on to um, define when it would be most appropriate for an indigenous woman to be treated within a customary law setting and when it would be appropriate for a um, statutory legal system to come into play. And those, the way that those careful calibrations were done were through participation of indigenous women in the discussions about what sort of situations do you face, when would it be most appropriate to go one way or the other. These are points of perhaps more conversation and debate and, and more open um, and where individual indigenous women are making very different decisions about where they stand on these questions. So um, it's very much about the mechanisms for change. Where, where do you intervene? How, what are your priorities going to be? And of course, indigenous women don't have, um, and their leaders don't have um, a single uh, arena in which they want to make a difference. They're trying a number of different things. Um, it's the, one of the big dilemmas is really whether they want to work within the state or against the state, and that's particularly become an issue since the, um, the election and then the constitution and the national plan for Buen Vivir. Um, and, of course, which civil society organisations do they want to work with? They, many have, of course, worked with the indigenous movements, um, but there are now much more diverse women's movements, um, and we have indigenous women becoming involved in those movements as well. But they do kind of come back always to the importance of their presence as indigenous women in public policy and the importance of their voice in public policy. Also very importantly, although again this varies, is that we don't have a sort of single view about indigenous men being articulated by indigenous women. Of course, they have very much more in-depth knowledge of the different kinds of men who have made things possible in the Chimborazo province, for example, or within the village, just as they are very sceptical about certain husbands that beat their wives for not letting them go to the meeting. But they have a much more subtle and differentiated understanding of indigenous masculinities than do many um, policymakers, for example. Um, and, and the final thing I think which is important is that indigenous women are never afraid to say, oh, but that doesn't apply to us. 
All right. In other words, that there's always that diversity which comes through. The Schwa women will disagree with the Andean women because they think that the Andean women have sort of defined what Sumat Kausai is and that's it. And so the Schwa women will always highlight that diversity with, within diversity um, dimension. Okay, so um, I'm going to have to go through this quite quickly. Um, I'm not... Stick up your hand if you know about the political situation in Ecuador between 2006 and 2009. No? Okay. Yeah. All right, some. All right. Correa gets elected. There's a constituent assembly. There's a new constitution which is based on rights. It's based on the idea of buen vivir, which is attributed in large part to the influence of the idea of sumat kausai, which is a Quechua term meaning living in plenitude. The idea of um, buen vivir has, of course, had very important inputs from environmentalists, feminists, a whole range of different things. I've written an article in 2012 which tries to explain the contentious politics by which the constitution of Ecuador became what it became, and how Buen Vivir as a development objective came out of that process. So the bottom line is you just need to know that Ecuador is now in development terms committed not to development, but to Buen Vivir. That has replaced the idea of development, and it is supposedly the duty of the state to inaugurate and to guarantee Buen Vivir for its citizens. There are some Ecuadorians in the room who might, um, of course, realize that this is a very big agenda and there is skepticism about the um, ability of people to get, achieve it. Um, but the beginning of that process, indigenous women thinking, fantastic, for the first time, development is being talked about in terms that we really know about. It's not we know about it because we've been excluded or we know about it because we're just ignored. We know about it because we've done Sumac Kalsai. We've done that. We've thought about it. And it includes us. So the expectation when Buen Vivir came in was huge. All right? And you see this in Monica Chuhi's um, comment at the beginning. She was obviously a, a very important person who was involved in that. But there's a real sense of ownership over Buen Vivir and Sumat Kausai, a sense that they contributed to knowledge production out of which this form of development occurred, which is crucial. Okay? And so I think that is an unprecedented um, process. I mean, many people have written about how the Constitution is unprecedented in many respects, but for me, this is one really important thing. So here we have Ana Maria just giving you her sense of what Buen Vivir means. Sorry, I, I'm very conscious that those of you in that room might not see very well. Um, but we think of Sumac Kausai in terms of food, the environment, in water, in the protection of lands and slopes. So when we be is something integrated, we're talking about how we must all live well, well-fed, well-educated with our own rights, right to life, good environment, rights to a good state, education. Okay, and it's also about this, look, we're all accepted, men, women, boys and girls, without discrimination on the basis of colour, ethnicity, clothing, language, and nothing. We all have the right to Buen Vivir, that's in the Constitution, Article 1. 
not sure she's quite right about Article 1, but, you know, the, the principle is there. I mean, this is an incredible sense of ownership over this, right? And an incredible sense of pride in what it can op offer to um, indigenous women. Um, obviously, um, people who were involved in Kunai and who were involved in those historic struggles to create the model of a plurinational state, which predates um, Korea's election by many decades, um, are articulating something which, among the movement, is a very common sort of sense, a very common discourse and, and model, and so on. But for women such as the ones pictured here, who are um, young women in their sort of late teens, early 20s, you know, they, these are women who haven't been involved in the Kunai discussions about the plurinational state and so on, and, but they are feeling connected um, in, in, in this way. And so I just show you some quotes. Perhaps the most interesting is this one from Sonia, married Kichwa woman with one son, no political activism whatsoever. Um, but for me, the most important rights would be sumak kausai and to have mutual understanding in a marriage and have food for our hungry family, but the government doesn't deliver what it promises. And here you begin to see the beginning of a sense of a dis mismatch between, on the one hand, buen vivir, as it's articulated by the government, and the sense of sumak kausai, which for Quechua women responds much more to their own philosophy and their own critique and model for how development might change. And um, I'm going to have to rush through this. Um, but here, Dahlia, the women's representative in Chimborazo, says, you know, for us, there is no sumac kausai. The little gifts the government gives us aren't sumac kausai. Sarah, you've seen, but we don't have water for irrigating our crops. She's referring there, of course, to the fact that sumac kausai has this incredible... Um, or Bombivir has an incredible infrastructure of rights, but in terms of making a difference on the ground, which is where indigenous women need that intervention, then of course there is, a, there is in this and other quotes, a sense of a mismatch um, between what is promised and what is delivered. Um, this just is a quote um, which I think is very important, which is that the understanding of sumac kausai articulated by some but not all of the Kichwa women I talk to is that it is integrally related to the idea of Pachamama which is not just earth but it is a sentient political being as De La Cadena highlights that these, the Pachamama is an earth being and therefore it has agency and has political um, freight, it has political importance in people's understandings of what they are doing. Um, I've written elsewhere about that. I can't go into that here. So here we then get critiques of macroeconomic policy by, um, by one indigenous woman who has become a sort of development worker herself, but holding the macroeconomic policy of the government up to criticism because it goes against some of these... Um, beliefs about the, um, the earth as a habitat um, in a more sustainable way. Okay, I think I've done that. Okay, so conclusions. Um, I started with the indigenous women 
development policy. And that's one of the policies that I sort of look at in depth in the book. But I hope that it highlights the ways in which colonial modern forms of reading indigeneity and indigenous women's experience are incredibly powerful and they are, you know, have an ongoing power. It's very difficult to get rid of some of the dominant ways that development has of thinking about indigenous women as the most vulnerable, as the most disadvantaged, or as unknowledgeable. And this is entirely consistent in one way with the kind of neoliberal model of how you get better people and a better life and make progress. Um, but I hope that by moving on to some of the ways in which indigenous women have re-articulated development from their perspective, and particularly their, even their critiques of Gwen Vivier in, in the um, most recent years, um, it highlights the fact that indigenous women are theorizing subjects, they're critical subjects, and they're very knowledgeable subjects. And you know, if there was one thing to come out of the book, it would be to say that it, it, that has, has to be acknowledged, really, for anything really to change in those patterns of exclusion that the um, indigenous women have experienced. Um, but, I, but it's also important to recognize that indigenous women do have varying degrees of visibility over time. Um, and that where people have in the past talked about women, of course, the women, indigenous women have been included, but they've been included very much um, within some of these forms of, of reducing their agency, reducing their knowledge, and reducing their capacity to respond to um, development. Thank you very much. Thanks.